Holy Father, thank you for gathering us together as a family in your house at your table. You are a good and perfect host, and you invite us to eat well. And so I pray now with this feast spread before us, the feast of the revelation, I pray that we will look at it and see it, really see it. I know we won't see everything, and I know we won't see all the details, and I know I won't be able to do it justice, but I do pray, Lord, that you'd give us a glimpse, give us a vision of what is going on here, what is happening, what you want us to know, how you want to encourage and comfort us, how you want to strengthen our faith through this book. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, Revelation is a notoriously difficult to interpret book. That's why, I assume that's why people ask me about it. And one of the reasons that it's so hard to interpret is because it's full of symbolic images, right? The Revelation is a cinematic book. It's a beautiful book. And as you read it, probably, I think, maybe more than any other book in the Bible, except maybe Ezekiel, it, it demands that you use your imagination and picture what you're reading about. It's a book full of images, full of pictures. And so that's how we'll approach it. What I decided to do is just, I'm going to pull out four key images from the book of Revelation. We'll just take a little tour and we'll stop at four key pictures or images that God wants to plant in our minds and more importantly in our hearts from the book of Revelation. So here are the four images we'll look at. I'll point out as we fly over. First is the throne. We're going to look at the throne. Second is the storms. We're going to look at some storms. Third is the lamb. The centerpiece of the book of Revelation is the lamb. And fourth and last, we're going to look at the city. The book of Revelation ends in a city, and we're going to have a look around that city and see what it's like. So those are the images that we're going to look at from Revelation. First of all, the throne. The throne is an image that dominates in the book of Revelation. It's the throne of God. It's kind of the centerpiece of the book of Revelation. And so we want to enter into the throne room together. So I'm going to, we get a description of God's throne room in Revelation. In fact, multiple descriptions of the throne room. I'm going to read from Revelation 4, Nicole, if you could project that, that would be great. I'm going to read from Revelation 4 and verses 2 to 8. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Okay, you picturing that? There's a main throne in the middle, but as we're looking kind of from above, you see that there are 24 thrones surrounding in a circle around the one throne in the middle, and on those 24 thrones, there are 24 elders seated. Okay, we got to picture this. From the throne, the middle throne, the main throne, came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, 
were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in the back. Again, picture, that now there's a tighter circle. There was 24 thrones around the perimeter. Now there's a tighter, tighter circle of four creatures, these creatures that are covered with eyes. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stop saying. They, they never stop. If you enter the throne room, you, it, it, there, there's sound that will immediately hit your ears. And the sound is this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. That's the soundtrack of the throne room of heaven. Notice, we, we, we don't yet have a description of the one who's seated on the throne. We just have a description of the throne and, the, and its surroundings. But that description of the surroundings is intended to frame the splendor of the one who sits on the throne. Right? We purposely were looking around at what surrounds the throne in order to prepare us to behold the one who occupies the throne. My family and I, we recently visited the art museum in San Diego, and uh, it's, it's great. It's very impressive. And it, it, they have works by like, very famous painters that even I have heard of, so Picasso and Monet and Renoir. And one of the things I was struck by as we walked through these rooms and looked at all these paintings, I, I was really struck by the beauty of the frames. The frames are amazing. Uh, some of the frames are, they're works of art themselves, right? They have highly ornate and detailed carvings carved into the frames and scroll work. And the joints on these frames are just perfectly seamless. They're almost invisible. Now, the frames aren't the main point. It's not a frame museum. The point of the whole thing is to display the paintings. But the frames serve to highlight, they call attention to the paintings. The frames were, 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 were like a celebration of what they contained. The frames were shouting. They weren't shouting, look at me. The frames were shouting, look at what's inside of me. Isn't it amazing? And that's what this description of the throne room and the throne itself is intended to do. These descriptions are not given so that you and I, we, so that we can know what to expect when we get there. There's, it's not given so that we can understand the details of the difference between, well, what do the elders do and what do the four living creatures do? These, these poetic and beautiful descriptions serve to frame the glory of the one who is seated on the throne. The, 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 the surroundings in the throne room are shouting. They're, they're not shouting, look at us. They're shouting, look at the splendor and the glory and the beauty of the king. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Right? These beautiful things around, these glorious things around are all pointing towards framing and celebrating the one who occupies the throne. Listen, God is on that throne. God is on that throne right now. And he is both beautiful and sovereign. He is reigning. He is reigning not only over the throne room. He's not just in charge in the throne room. He is reigning right now over all of history. The narrative of history that has been marching forward since the beginning of time, since God created time. History with all of its joys and all of its sorrows, 
with all of its kindness and all of its cruelty, history full of love and hate, full of war and peace, full of sickness and health, full of famine and abundance, all of it, over all of it, there is a glorious God who is seated on his throne and who is reigning. That is one of the main points of the book of Revelation, and the image that encapsulates that is God's throne room. And what a privilege and a blessing it is that the book, in the book of Revelation, we are invited into that throne room to have a look around. That should be a faith-building, worship-inducing, awe-inspiring experience for us when we look around the throne room. Okay, the next image. We've looked at the throne room. The next image we want to look at is the image of a storm. In fact, multiple storms. There's lots of storms described in the book of Revelation. In chapter 5, our attention is drawn to the hand of the one who's seated on the throne. We haven't yet looked full at the one on the throne, but just look at the hand of the one on the throne. We're told that it's holding a scroll. We're told that this scroll has writing on both sides, so it's full of words. And we're told that this scroll has seven wax seals on it. Most scrolls are sealed with just one, but this one, for some reason, has seven wax seals on it. And then beginning in chapter 6, the one on the throne begins to break and open the seals on the scroll. And as he opens those seals, we enter into an extended section of Revelation that covers chapter 6 all the way to chapter 20. And during those chapters, the storms of God's judgment roll out with repeated peals of thunder. We witness three, three major storms in the book of Revelation uh, and they correspond to the breaking of the seven seals on that scroll. And then there's a blasting of seven trumpets followed by a storm. And then there's the pouring out of seven bowls of God's wrath, which is also associated with a, with a storm. Three cycles of judgment from the Lord. And after the seventh seal is opened, we read this. This is in chapter 8, and I'm starting in verse 5, and we have this to project as well. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it at the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet. And there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. That storm of hail and fire and blood is accompanied by the blasting of trumpets. That storm includes, if you read on into the details, it, it includes swarming locusts that look like horses, that have faces like humans and teeth like lions. You picturing that? I, I, I don't believe that that image is meant to be understood literally. It's an image. I do believe it's meant to be terrifying, though. In, in, in verse 11 and 19, after the seventh trumpet is sounded, we read, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. And then after the seventh bowl of God's wrath is poured out, we read in chapter 16, in verse 7, 
The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done! Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. Now, I, I don't believe those storms piled upon storms are intended to give us a strictly chronological pro progression of what's going to happen. I think this is a poetic and prophetic description of, of an ascending spiral of God's judgment. So what is, what is this judgment all about? Well, judgment is about justice. If you're a lover of justice, then you better be prepared for judgment because judgment and justice go hand in hand. Okay, so what kind of justice are we talking about here? Our kind of justice? No. No, our justice, human justice is inherently flawed and imperfect because we humans are flawed and imperfect. We do our best. Justice still matters. We still need to pursue and promote justice, but we do so with a recognition of our limitations. But God pursues and promotes justice without bringing any limitations into that equation. Right? So human justice, in human justice, sometimes the perpetrator gets punished, but... No help is given to the victims. Or sometimes in, in, in human justice, our, our justice is uncertain or it's misdirected. We go after the wrong thing or after the wrong person. Or human justice sometimes includes prison. And prison is intended to be a remedial form of justice where perpetrators are punished, yes, but they're also healed and restored. And yet in real life, prison often makes people worse, not better. Human justice sometimes allows the guilty to go free or sometimes it allows the guilty to get out and repeat their offenses. The point is, we make mistakes when we try to enforce justice. We don't do it perfectly. But the king who sits upon the throne is without sin and without limitation. He has all the data. He knows all the facts. He knows what's right and what's wrong and he knows how to enforce justice justly. Unlike us, unlike us. In my history class, I always lead with the lecture in which I emphasize the limitations of history. That's what the lecture is called, the limitations of history. You see, we might be able to determine when a particular event took place, but we will never have all the facts about that event, never. Right? We might know that, okay, we know Columbus sailed west in 1492. Right? But we don't know why. But we can look at the evidence and we can guess. We can guess why. Right? It's probably a combination of, an, of a lot of things. There's probably greed for gold combined with some religious conviction, combined with some racism, combined with a desire for adventure, combined with a desire to have his name remembered, maybe a desire to, 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 to earn the approval of, 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 of other people. Who, all sorts of things, all sorts of motivations go into that action. People are complicated. We never have the full story. You never have the full story when you're trying to figure out why did somebody do something. Even if you're trying to figure out yourself, why did I do that? It's complicated. People are complicated. Our 
Our interpretations, our judgments, when we make judgments about other people, they need to be provisional. They need to be open to reinterpretation. If we get new evidence, they need to be done with humility. But God doesn't have that problem. God knows everything there is to know about everything. He knows all the complicated layers of reasons that go into every human action. He himself has never fallen short of his perfect standard of righteousness. And so he is the only one who is perfectly positioned to make judgments and enforce justice. And that is exactly what we see him doing in Revelation 6 to 20. That's what he's doing. And it's scary. And it feels like a storm of hail and fire and blood and like the biggest earthquake in history. It's scary. It's fearful. I had a friend in university. She read the book of Revelation one night. Uh, I'm not sure what motivated her to do that, but she did. She wasn't particularly religious. She found it so disturbing that she had trouble sleeping for months and months afterwards. She intuitively understood that she had failed to keep God's standard, that she had willfully broken God's law, and she was kept awake at night by the fear of God's judgment after having read about his judgment in the book of Revelation. Now listen, I believe it's right and good to be sobered by the prospect of God's righteous judgment. However, in the next image, we're going to look at something that teaches us that we actually don't need to be afraid. That God has made provision to protect us from his wrath. And that image is the image of the Lamb. So we've talked now a lot about the throne. We have a picture in our, in our minds of the throne room. Now is the time to take a look at the one who is seated on the throne. In chapter 5, we find the Apostle Paul, the, author, the Apostle John, sorry, the, uh, the author of Revelation. He's weeping because there's that scroll with the seals and no one is worthy to break the seals of the scroll. So in verse 5 of chapter 5, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and by the elders. I, th I, I hope we're able to feel the shock of that phrase, Then I saw the lamb. We, we, we obviously expect to see a human king on the throne. If not that, then some sort of immaterial representation of God, like pure light or something like that. And if it's going to be an animal on that throne, we would expect to see a lion. In fact, we, we've been kind of set up to expect to see a lion because in verse 5 it says, See, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. But when we actually look at the throne, what we see is a lamb. Oh, that's nice. That's cute. You mean like a big, clean, fluffy, cuddly lamb? No. A lamb looking as if it had been slain. Why is there a slain lamb on the throne of God? Because this is the lamb who satisfies the storm of judgment and justice. Listen to what it says about this lamb in chapter 7. I think we have this one to project as well. In chapter 7, and I'm starting... In verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, 
and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then later in verse 14, we're told that these are they who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So it would appear that even though the prospect of God's justice is scary for sinners such as ourselves, nonetheless, he has provided a way for us to survive that, to bypass the judgment. God's judgment need not fall on our heads because it fell on the head of the lamb who was slain to pay for our sins. That's great news. And that has the potential to replace our fear with hope and with peace. And we are now welcomed into the throne room of God as his beloved sons and daughters, family members invited into God's household. But we can't just, we can't just waltz in there and proclaim, well, here I am. Aren't you, aren't, you, aren't you glad to see me? Aren't you glad I'm here? No, no, no. There's a, there's a dress code here in this room, in this throne room. Now, if, you like, if you're like me, you avoid places with dress codes. It's not that I mind dressing up. What I, what I mind is being told what to wear. I don't, I don't like to be told what to wear. I don't like to go to places where you have to wear a certain thing. But there is a dress code here, and I do want to go here. So I'm going to have to conform to the dress code. I read about, I read about a particular dress code this week. I was doing a little research, a little historical research, and I, and I, I found out about a Canadian tuxedo. Everybody here knows what that is, I assume, right? This is Canada. Canadian tuxedo, jean jacket on top, jeans on the bottom. That's a Canadian tuxedo. So I learned this week the story, the derivation, the origin story of the Canadian tuxedo. Here it is. And for, the, for those few of you in the room that don't know it, here it is. Apparently, Bing Crosby, famous actor and singer, the year was 1951. The place is Vancouver. And Bing Crosby is out on a hunting trip uh, in the area in B.C. And uh, he, after a day of hunting, he shows up at a hotel, a very, very fancy hotel in Vancouver. I don't know which one. But apparently it's the hotel is so fancy that it has a dress code. Just to be in the lobby, there's a dress code at this hotel. And Mr. Crosby had showed up in his hunting gear wearing a pair of Levi's blue jeans. And that was a violation of the dress code. And apparently he was booted right out of the lobby and not allowed to stay there because of his violation. People couldn't stand the thought of looking at a man in blue jeans. And so the Levi's company saw this as a, as a marketing opportunity, and what they did is they had a tailor-made all-denim tuxedo that they presented to Bing Crosby that he could wear when he goes to these fancy places and still submit to the dress code but still wear jeans, and that's the story of the Canadian tuxedo. So, there is a dress code to be in the presence of God, to be in the throne room of God Almighty. There is a dress code, and you don't just walk in there like this, or like you all look. So what is it? We, we should know, so that we don't get kicked out. What is it? Well, these people worshiping the Lamb are wearing robes that have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the dress code. 
Anyone who wishes to avoid the wrath of God's judgment and experience the blessing of his presence needs to wear one of those blood-washed white robes. But wait a minute. Washing something in blood doesn't make it white, does it? So what is going on here? Well, like so much of the book of Revelation, this is a symbolic image. To be wearing a robe made white by the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ is a symbolic way of representing the fact that all of us were previously wearing robes that had been soiled with our own sin. That made us unfit to stand in the presence of the King. And it is only the blood of Jesus Christ that can get those stains out. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and that sacrifice gets credited to our account by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our sins are forgiven, our robes are washed clean, and we are invited to come out of the storm of God's judgment and into the peace of God's throne room. We can only enter into that peace if we're wearing the white robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. And now we come to the final image. It's the image of a city. Chapter 21 opens with these words. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Okay, so heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, is going to be in a city. That's maybe a little depressing for those of you who grew up in the country. Don't really love the city. Or for people like me who did grow up in the city, but have now come to see how much better the country is over the city. Heaven's going to be a city? See, but the, but, the, but the city of the new heavens and the new earth, it isn't like any city we've experienced before. First of all, it's a city that contains rivers and gardens and orchard, and it's lush and it's green. It's not small and dirty and crowded like some cities. And it is a city that is full of regenerate, redeemed, glorified people, people who love each other and can't get enough of each other and get along all the time. It's a city that is inhabited by the very presence of God himself, just like the very, very old days when God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And the shape of the city gives us a clue about what it'll be like. It's not flat. It's not measured in square feet like most cities are. It's a giant three-dimensional cube, giant cube. It's, it's 2,200 kilometers wide, 2,200 kilometers long, and 2,200 kilometers tall. A perfect, ginormous cube. Is that symbolic? You bet it is, right? What is that symbol of a giant cube city? What is it pointing to? The most holy place, right? The holy of holies was a perfect cube. The dimensions were a perfect cube in the holy of holies. That was the place where the high priest went only once a year, making sacrifices for the people. And it was there, right above the Ark of the Covenant, that once a year God met. God was present, powerfully present with his people. The cube-shaped most holy place was pointing forward to a cube-shaped heavenly city 
where God will dwell with his people. The people of God will live in the presence of God forever. That's the culmination of history, right? That's the place where all of this is heading. All the war and peace and the sadness and joy and and all of it. The story of history is moving towards this culmination in this city. And so I realize that we skipped over a lot of details. But the basic message of Revelation is this. If you got this, you got the basic message of Revelation. Our glorious and great God is in control. He is seated on the throne right now. And he is reigning over all of history right now. One day, he will enforce justice, his justice, upon the heads of those who have rebelled against his rule and reign. But he shall deliver all of his people through the shed blood of the Lamb, and he will one day bring his people into his presence to be with him forever. The rest is just details. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for this message of hope and joy and peace. Thank you for the promises that are contained in the book of Revelation. Thank you for the promise that you've given us that you are reigning, that you are in control, that you are sovereign. Things are not out of hand. You have not failed to notice the things that are taking place on earth, but you're very much actively involved your rule and your reign seated on the throne. Thank you for the powerful reminder we get of that when we take a peek into the throne room. Lord, we are scared at the prospects of the storms of your just justice, at the bowls of wrath poured out on the earth and on humanity. That is scary. That does make our knees tremble. But we thank you that you have provided a, a, a place of protection a way for us to have our sins completely and entirely forgiven, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb and clothed in His righteousness. And we thank you for the promise that though, though in this fallen world we experience pain and sadness and separation, sickness, that we have a promise that this is all heading to a place where every tear will be wiped by you And there will be no more mourning and no more pain, no more trials, no more separation, no more sin, no more death. We thank you that we are headed to a city like that. And we pray that you give us strength as we proceed. In Christ's name, amen.